Welcome back to another episode of the Ecumen. So tonight we are going to go over lesson 12. Here we're going to discuss the marks and attributes of the church. So this will be a good topic so we can go into more of the details to explain why the Catholic Church is the way. Before we get going, I want to remind everyone, please follow us on YouTube on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, share our podcast wherever you can. Right now, this is the only way we're going to be able to get out and have anyone listen to us. And we're trying to help wherever we can with catechesis for all those individuals out there who haven't gotten it before. So please take whatever you can get from us, uh, throw us comments, send us emails, follow us on Twitter and WordPress. You can find us out there as well. we got more stuff that you guys can gather in order to learn more about the Catholic Church. So uh, whatever uh, we can do for you, we're happy to help. So let's get started here. So Um, We've talked about the Catholic Church in the past, so now we're going to move into uh, details uh, that describe that church. So question 152, which is the one true church established by Christ? The one true church established by Christ is the Catholic Church. The reason this is important for anyone who's following along here, all of the other denominations of Christianity out there were not established by Christ himself. They were actually established by individual men, and most times we can track back to the individual guy or gal themselves who actually established it, and why they did their own little thing, and how they think they're actually following in line with Christ, even though nowhere does he mention their name at all in any of the scriptures they supposedly follow. Yeah, no real surprise here to that question. You know, it's not really a bit of a plot twist uh, for those following along at home. It's the Catholic Church. It's the only one he founded. Every other one, as Pete said, was founded by an individual uh, man for worldly or individual reasons. And St. Jerome actually talks about the naming of those churches, that if the names have anything other than Catholic, that they are not actually of Christ. And this is what one of the great fathers, the four great fathers of the church actually stated about this body And this is also why Irenaeus is out there writing against heresies. And a handful of other doctors and uh, the fathers earlier than Jerome are writing about the same thing. Everyone wants to be Catholic, but not everyone actually is universal, what Catholic means. It is interesting that, I suppose how we say, it is interesting that the word Catholic gets such a virulent response. You know, based on what St. Jerome said, you know, it's the only one. If it doesn't bear that name, and yet somehow... It seems to be what Protestants rail against the most, most of that word. You haven't seen the ones that claim to be Catholic? They're like, but we're part of the Catholic Church. I mean, little c, but I mean, it's, but we're Catholic too. And it's all about the twisting of words. I don't really like it. They don't have anything else. I'm looking at this, by the way, folks, Pete's been investing in our equipment. I have to say, if this was a video, really cool uh, computer here. <laughs> really cool, actually. Pretty yeah. nifty. It's got like a see-through panel. Reminds me of like laser glaze. <laughs> All the lights in there. This is what happens when we have to buy our own equipment and get something to bring new content to all of you guys. Well, you know, efforts. There you go. With a little E. That's right, as opposed to the big one, right? All right, question 153. How do we know that the Catholic Church is the one true church established by Christ? We know that the Catholic Church is the one true church established by Christ because it alone has the marks of the true church. Now let's go into the marks so we can then uh, fully flesh out this topic here. Question 154, what do we mean by the marks of the church? By the marks of the church, we mean certain clear signs by which all men can recognize it as the true church founded by Jesus Christ. 155, what are the chief marks of the church? The chief marks of the church are four. It is one, holy, Catholic, or universal, and apostolic. So... The next questions actually expand on this, but really the takeaway here is to make sure that we understand what is being emphasized with this, this, with this lesson here of the catechism. And the point really is that there is not this weird heterogeneous and metaphorical body of Christ. The mystical body of Christ is visible, just like his flesh and blood. This body is singular in that I don't have to worry about different groups arguing with each other. My finger does not argue with my foot about how it's supposed to work for me. They all work together in unison without contradiction, uniformly, smoothly. 
not say as Baptists and Lutherans argue over whether or not we should baptize babies or whether we look at Lutherans arguing with Pentecostals as to whether or not it is a symbol up there in terms of what that communion bread and juice in some cases is versus whether or not it's really the body and blood of Christ. And we can keep going through this, whether or not we accept homosexual marriage, whether or not we accept female pastors, whether or not we accept a whole host of other practices out there. Methodists just split up over the LGBT issue. Yes, they did. And these contradictions all start to show that perhaps all of these individual bodies that are arguing over many different details about what Christ tried to tell us shows they're not exactly one. So this leads us right into question 156. Why is the Catholic Church one? The Catholic Church is one because all its members, according to the will of Christ, profess the same faith and have the same sacrifice and sacraments and are united under one and the same visible head, the Pope. <laughs> I think, um, going back to you know, this, obviously all these questions are related, but the whole idea that the true church of, of Christ bears the marks, right? So that we can discern, right? God's merciful. God is just. Uh, you hear it all the time, like, well, how do we know? You, you could believe yours and I can believe mine, and we just never know. And it's like, well... That's a really that's a really crummy thing for God to do to just be like, oh man, I let him get watch that guy. He got hope fooled. they find their way. He got fooled. Man, too bad I'm gonna damn him to hell forever. Newsflash, everybody! Christianity is not a treasure hunt. No, it was not a mystery that we're supposed to solve in a book. This is a set of instructions that allow an individual to completely unify themselves, body and soul to the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. He spelled out all of those commandments for us in Scripture and through his church and the prelates that pass on that set of information to us in terms of how we are supposed to live. This is not mysterious. It should not be mysterious. Now, the Holy Trinity? Sure, mysterious. But you know what? I can still be saved and not actually understand the full details of how God sees himself in the Trinity. Those are what we call like-to-haves. Right? They're not, they're what we like to be like, man, I really wish I understood, but I don't, and that's okay. What is not okay is to at all be confused about sacraments. Sacraments, correct. The nature of the Mass, the authority of the Pope the nature or of the Christ. bishops. Like, you know, those things you need to understand, accept, and obey the certain precepts of the faith. And to that end, God placed people. To instruct us, we have tradition, sacred scripture, and the church in which we follow bears out the marks that he told it told us it would bear out, because he does not leave us uh, to our own devices. And I think this. Let's go and emphasize here too. Again, the oneness of the church. We all agree that there's the same head, the same authority, the same bishops with the same power. All apostolically, they're they're following an apostolic succession. This one unified body that all agrees with itself is in line with the scriptures as Jesus gave us this church. So in John 17, 11, he talks about the fact that we are one. And he's talking about the Holy Father and those who keep the name. And so him as well, all of us together, one. Well, and John ten sixteen talks about the one fold of the church, not a bunch of folds, not a bunch of different denominations. The word denomination, by the way, and I think we may have already discussed it, means autonomous body, okay? If you're an autonomous body, you are now saying that you don't necessarily answer to anybody. Now, someone could try to split hairs and say, well, I'm autonomous, but I follow Christ. Okay, follow Christ in everything except for being unified with the one true church. Really dumb. Sounds like the whole, uh, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. Which makes no sense when Jesus was completely religious. We can't listen to random pastors or try to interpret scripture on our own. That was not for us to do. Well, that we is don't what interpret scripture interprets itself. <laughs> He's trolling right now. It's so wonderful. I know. I'm sorry. I, I need to, uh, I need to. He's channeling so. Martin Luther right here. We just can't have this. We just get the holy water out and see if we can solve the problem. So before we uh, continue to go any more off track here, 
Uh, I'll add one more verse to this that they actually reference in the catechism, and they talk about because the bread is one, we, though many, are one body, all of us who partake of the one bread. And this also, we get into the mystical body of Christ that uh, Paul talks about in Colossians. So again, it's singular, this one unified group. Again, the hand doesn't argue with the leg, the heart doesn't argue with the brain. Together, we are all one unified organism here, this one mystical body following the head, who is Christ, and the Pope, who is his vicar, who follows along. So just uh, we keep that in mind as we keep going and talk about the, the Catholic Church, this one body. So again, if you guys have issues, throw us questions. We're happy to answer them. Question 157, why is the Catholic Church holy? The Catholic Church is holy because it was founded by Jesus Christ, who is all holy, and because it teaches, according to the will of Christ, holy doctrines, and provides the means of leading a holy life, thereby giving holy members to every age. So this holiness that is in Christ, he shares with all of us. This is what Peter promised us in sharing the divinity. And this is the gifts that are supposed to come through the graces of God, through his works, when we take our will and unify it to his. So the verses they're talking through here are Matthew seven seventeen through 20. Again, they use uh, Jesus likes talking about plants and roots and vines. And in this case, he's talking about the tree. And we only have the possibility of bearing good fruit, good works to glorify him when we are unified to him. And then we can show how close we are to him. Yeah, I think it's very interesting, right? We as humans only have the ability to look backwards and then see the time we're in. We can't really look forwards. So we're, I mean, we're about to talk about, we're about to talk about the other two remaining marks of the church. But I think it's um, the idea the Catholic church is holy is important and probably gets lost, right? We the really when we have the arguments, we talk about apostolic, right? We talk about the oneness. Um, we use these to kind of point to the errors of mainly Protestant denominations. But I think it's important to the the uh, the holy, right? The the idea you will know them by their fruits, and it's one thing that that's of the here and now, right? You um. Before we go on, I want to make an important note here that we're not dissing Protestants, individuals. We're dissing Protestantism. The distinction is important because Protestants can change their direction and become Catholic. Protestantism has no way to actually be rectified with with Christianity as given us by Christ through scriptures and oral tradition. Hope that helps everybody understand where we're coming from on this one. And if you have questions, hit us up. We'll be happy to answer. Moving on, question 158. Why is the Catholic Church Catholic or universal? The Catholic Church is Catholic or universal because it is destined to last for all time. It never fails to fulfill the divine commandment to teach all nations all the truths revealed by God. So let's not forget that Jesus did not tell us, turn to the Bible if you don't know what to do. Turn to the Bible if you want to learn about me and everything that I ever did. He never says, look to the Bible. Paul, when he's instructing Timothy and Titus and Philemon on how to be good bishops, he never tells them, just make sure to read your Bibles because no Bible existed. Christ did not command the apostles to write the Bible, the book. And this is Pope Charisius, by the way, is the first one to mention the Bible in case anyone wants to know. So a Pope is the first one to call it the Bible. And it doesn't have that name beforehand. And the Pope who preceded him, Pope Damasus I, is the one who actually assembled all the scriptures. So let's uh, get our timeline straight here before we keep down this road. But The irony, by the way, that the Pope gave the name, the word Bible. <laughs> I know, right? You know, if we were talking about, right, if we talk about the whole idea of, all right, guys, so you, you, you follow the Bible or you read the Bible or whatever it is. What, mm-hmm. is Jesus, what do you think Jesus says about you know, his church, his one church that he's founded upon, you know, St. Peter, the rock upon which he builds the church on. Well, it's just brothers in Christ, man. It's a very nebulous, a very nebulous concept well, that, that's problem. always given back, right? Yeah. So, like, the four marks of the church really, really are, like, concrete. You can look and do a deep dive and a logical assessment on those four marks with whatever do- denomination you're looking at. It just seems that many of our Protestant brothers really fall into that trap of like, ah, dude, could try to put labels on it, man. <laughs> could try to put labels on it. We're just, you know, we're just, we're just brothers in Christ. So are, so I'm a Catholic and you're a, you know, such and such Protestant. Are we, 
we're brothers in Christ. Yeah, man, you accept Christ. That's good. What if Satanists accept Christ too? <laughs> like, well, the thing is, yeah, they do. That's the problem. They accept the fact that he exists. If they didn't accept the fact that he exists, they wouldn't have black masses. The whole thing is just, ugh. it's like uh, I've heard the uh, God is everywhere. I know it doesn't mean he likes everything that's going on everywhere he happens to be looking. And then jumping labels on it, man. I know. Oh, it just it's like I don't know. So when you roll everything together, the whole point here is that Paul actually tells Timothy directly, explicitly, that the church is where God's truth lies. And Timothy, bishop at Ephesus, so the Ephesians, when he writes that letter where Timothy is bishop, he writes a letter to the Ephesians and tells them that God's wisdom is contained, not in the Bible, surprise, but in the church. And then when we look to Matthew eighteen seventeen. That is also where Christ says to correct a brother, you turn them to the church. This body that Paul and Jesus mention repeatedly is the one to which all of us should be submitting, not to every individual denomination which competes with the Catholic Church and all uniformly agree that they don't like the Pope or a Pope or even the bishops or priests or anyone who has a different level because they all want to be egalitarian and apparently communist. I don't understand it. But it is not in alignment with scripture, which talks about there are greater and lesser in heaven, which means we're looking at a hierarchy where we see those all over nature. So putting it all together, one body, one uniform body has the ability to teach and to keep everyone holy so long as we follow those teachings. And one of the things that we were talking about here on the side having to do with this episode is the fact that these attributes because we're going to go next into the uh catholic and apostolic and maybe we want to hit it afterwards if you want to you want to do the roll up after we hit the next questions all right we'll roll this up here after we get through question 159 so question 158 the catholic church is catholic or universal because it is destined to last for all time it never fails to fulfill the divine commandment and to teach all nations all truths revealed by god yeah i mean that's i remember that i remember this and uh, again, I, I really am not doing this to rag on uh, our Protestant friends. I know it sounds like we, you know, we like to poke fun a lot, but I remember when I was uh, younger, I was probably, uh, I was probably in, in maybe in high school or maybe like right before high school. And of course, my mother was raised Southern Baptist and my grandfather is still a Southern Baptist. And so we went to uh, service. Right, which those following along at home, not okay to do. I didn't know any better. My parents didn't know any better. Yeah, and we're talking about Catholics here. You're not supposed to be going to worship services for other denominations, obviously, or other religions, because in the end, what you're not doing there is the sacrifice of the Mass, which means the body, blood, soul, and divinity is not present within that building, and the Father is not receiving his Son in offering, which we read in Hebrews is the only thing that he will accept in offering. Therefore, all of our merits, all of our prayers, all of our sacrifices, penances, whatever, the only reason they have any merit whatsoever is because of Christ himself, yeah. body, blood, soul, and divinity. Um, but this is why. Which is, which is very interesting. I mean, in, in Protestants, and we won't go on too much with it, but they always say, you know, whenever three gather in my name, I am present. And, and that's what they always use to justify their Bible studies uh, on Sunday. But um, the it is it is funny that you bring that up, the fact that it is true. Like, that's how God wants to be worshipped on the Sabbath. He wants to be worshipped with a sacrifice of his son. Right. And because that is how we merit everything is through his son, which is funny because we get harped on all the time by Protestants about like grace and your works mean nothing. And Jesus is the one I remember. And I only bring that up, too, because who knows, maybe a lot of people listening. That's the state of that was the state of I went to a Catholic school from kindergarten to senior high school. And I never knew that. That's why we're here teaching, guys. and my uh, my parents, you know, coming through RCIA were never taught that either. So anyways, but I remember somebody had made a comment after the little service. It made, uh, if I remember correctly, it had made a comment deriding the Catholic Church or something like that. To, like a little tongue-in-cheek joke. And I remember as like a 13-year-old or 14-year-old just being like, you know, if you or your your minister embezzled all the money that you will take up in offerings 
this church would fold and would be no more. Poof. 20, 30 years, no one would remember it was here. Which is what's happening to tons of Protestant churches tons right now because they have done it multiple generations. 20, 20 years ago, this church didn't exist. 20 years from now, it may not exist. You had 40 years. Is that really what you think Jesus had in mind? Hey, I'm going to just wait around here until we get to the 21st century and then we're going to have a good 15-year run. <laughs> As every single denomination splits and turns into splits a new one or three or four. And splits and folds and splits and folds and all that. And um, so, yeah, when we're going back to the whole Catholic universal thing, right, as people go, well, I mean, the Catholic Church is not everywhere. And it's like, no, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about will last to the end of time. It has always been around, going back to the Old Testament again, it has always been around, and it will always be around until the end of time. And the same cannot be said of any other denomination, denomination, philosophy, false religion, anything. They all will go by the wayside, or they all sprung up out of some weird, twisted, demonic. Or man-made. Or man-made influences. And so that's really what we're talking about when we say Catholic. Yeah, and and stop to think for a second. Lutheran is literally named after Luther. Calvinist. Literally named after the man. And then you go on to the Anglican, which, how can the church... The universal church (laughs) be... Only in England. Only in England. Uh, what? I will say that is a very English thing to say. (laughs) It's like the Eastern Orthodox Church. The what? No West. Apparently, we're not universal anymore. Now we just no, have a region no that we West. follow, or maybe we're Russian. Or wait a minute, that only a, no, sure. none of this actually adds up to Catholic. Is the whole thing? So this actually is, regardless of whether we can sit there and say that a what Catholic church. Say, what does somebody say? Well, why do you say Roman Catholic? Yeah, Roman is not a description of the location of the church. Roman is a description of where the head, the see of St. Peter resides. It's also a description the head. to let people know that we're not talking about some weird move the goalpost goal post lowercase terminology. C. Yeah, lowercase. Like, I'm a Catholic, but not like you imagine. <laughs> what? Yeah, this is the, the thing that differentiates the Catholics from the Eastern Orthodox. And when we say something that. like Irish Catholic, that's not a different church. That's just a weird cultural, like, hey, that tells you something about me. Hey, you know, there's culture that goes along with that and the Catholic. And, you know, you get a kind of an idea of a background within within three syllables or four syllables. Irish Catholic, somebody goes, oh, all right, kind of. I have a rough image of what's going on. But it's not a different church. And if you look at the scripture where you talk about Peter at Antioch, He's not founding another denomination at Antioch. This is the church's ability to touch people who live there at Antioch. So all of these different buildings, these different dioceses, bishoprics, these different parishes are all talking about where they reside, not that they have a different authority structure than the rest of the Catholic Church, all answering to the bishops who go to the pope, who all are in apostolic succession and all still acknowledge the sacraments, the sacrifice of the mass, every single commandment given by Christ, again, by word of mouth or in writing through his apostles. So all of this still brings together. That's what makes it universal. This is why Malachi 1.11, talking about that sacrifice that will go on perpetually, can be offered everywhere around the world until the end of time. That's what's going on in the sacrifice of the mass. That's why it's universal because, again, we don't care what country you come from. We don't care what the color of your skin is. We don't care whether you're male or female. We do not care whether you're young or old. In the end, it's all about whether, and we don't care what language you speak. We don't care how much money you have. We don't care what you do for a job. All these things that differentiate, you name the different denomination that's out there or other random religions. All this weird intersectionality matters, not one iota. Yes, because in the end, when we're judged, it's us basically completely devoid of all of this man-made stuff with the exception of any of our sins and united uh, good deeds with God. That's all we got. Everything's judged there. So we don't think about all the rest of that stuff because really what we got to figure out how to do is glorify God. So all that together, anyone can be Catholic. All of you can be Catholic and you can do it well. Keep listening to the podcast, subscribe. We'll go on. We'll keep giving you more information here to to do it well. Um, But again, Catholic, everyone can be, covers the world. There are always one body. That's what it means. Moving on to question 159. Why is the Catholic Church apostolic? The Catholic Church is apostolic because it was founded by Christ on the apostles and according to his divine will has always been governed by their lawful successors. 
Christ promised when he established this church. That's what Matthew 16, 18 is about. And this is where Protestants will argue. Some of them actually acknowledged, thankfully, that Peter was in charge of the church while he lived. But this goes back to what Brian and I brought up with the last episode where we sat there and said, so after the very first king was ever crowned in England, they didn't need any kings anymore, so you could just get rid of them, right? <laughs> There's no more kings. And after we had George Washington, that's why we got all rid of our presidents. Wait, wait a, a minute. It's that, kind of that a, didn't happen. Yeah, you know, that's, that's Jesus, right? You know, kind of just make sure you get your first few pedals on the bike and then <laughs> off you go. <laughs> so those apostles are what, obviously... They were the first ones to take the faith to the world, to make it universal, to make it cross national and language barriers. These guys, the first apostles, then appointed other apostles. You can see that second generation of apostles, that apostolic succession, when you look at the names of Mark and Luke and Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Clement, Ignatius, and Polycarp. Isn't it cool, too, like the lasting impacts that they have, you know? Thomas is who converted India, and he's still remembered there. And he's also known for baptizing the three wise men, by the way, mm-hmm. later on. And then the Magi from the East, yeah. You know, Luke, known in Spain. Like, I mean, you can see the marks. And this is, this is I don't want to say the coolest of the four. That's that's dumb to trivialize it. But it is pretty, it is pretty um, amazing to think about that every priest you see, Catholic priest, you can trace his lineage, right? His ordination lineage, right? The bishop laid hands on him. The bishop laid hands on him all the way back to the apostles. Yeah, which is really weird to think about, by the way. So, it's really weird, but so when how a priest, amazing is that? Yeah, when a priest sets hands on you to confirm you or to baptize a child and the, the way the ritual goes, his hands were actually anointed by the bishop. And that bishop, was anointed by a previous bishop, and so on and so forth. And that chain is unbroken all the way back to Jesus Christ, who did it the and very it really first time for, to some, the apostles. It really gives some gravitas to the... Uh, to the, uh, the church. Well, yes, to the church, but like um, it really gives some gravitas to the authority of the church, right? Because who are you, Joel Osteen, to tell me what God wants when you have a business degree or whatever he has. I don't know. Maybe he does have a theology degree, but he sprung up from seemingly nowhere, was really good entrepreneur, and now makes a whole bunch of money telling people what God thinks. And it's like, who gave you that authority? Yeah, versus the apostles where we know the authority came from holy orders, which is why you see in the book of Acts. And again, we talked about this in the last episode. You see in the book of Acts, John and Peter running around and putting hands on people. You see Paul giving instructions to Timothy and Titus how to actually do the ordination right. You see Hippolytus in 215, Pope, who's writing the actual ordination rites, and you see the initial description of how it all works to get new priests put into the priesthood around 200. No Protestant church goes back to that point and actually does any of that stuff anymore. All they talk about maybe is baptism, but they've left out holy oils. They've left out blessed candles. They've left out blessed anything practically. There's Where is all of that succession, all that apostolic truth, all of those facts that were given to us? It's not there. So this is the best part. So wrapping it all up, and this is the thing that you're talking about, tangibility. It's there. I can see it. Yeah, it's the I apostolic can... thing. And this is the whole thing, too, that's is before we get to that, to the, the roll-up, which is really awesome, is the idea, yeah, you know, look at Martin Luther, right? 1517, splits away. Never is it ever found in any Bible, printed anywhere. You, Martin Luther, the rock upon which I will build my church, we're just going to have to wait. 15, we're just going to have to wait 1,500 years, and then we'll get going. We're just going to, you know, and then they always, and this is the other thing, this is the other thing, because... Protestants, I have seen them try to get around this. There's some secret underground church within the church, like, right? The Romans are in there, they're underground, and it's like this weird Da Vinci Code-esque, like, well, it actually split off back in, like, two, you know, the Roman church became... No. No. Just no. no. So go ahead and ask 160, and then let's roll this up. All right. So, question 160, how do we know that no other church but the Catholic Church is the true Church of Christ? 
We know that no other church but the Catholic Church is the true Church of Christ because no other church has all of these four marks. Yeah, I mean, we talked about earlier, like God in his mercy, in his justice, right, essentially didn't just go, well, I hope they stumble their way into a Baltimore catechism one day and kind of figure it out. Roll the dice, man. Just roll roll the the dice. dice. He didn't say that. No, like, hey, there's four marks, right? And, you know, you, you talk to Protestants and be like, dude, literally tell me, you read the scriptures, but what do you think? Like, so what do you think God, when he says, you, Peter, the rock upon which I build my church, like, what does he mean by that, right? He's founding a church, like, so what's the church today? What, is, what, is, what does it look like? It's, it's brothers in Christ, man. We're just, we're all brothers Nebulous. in Christ. It's not uh, articulated very well. It's not tangible. You can't actually discern, right? Which is unfair. That's not just for God to just make it this weird thing that you could be possibly fooled, possibly not. This is not a game of chance. This is not a gambling thing. This is all you, about choice and will. He okay. essentially, he, he there's he's put, how, how about we put it this way? God, in his mercy and justice, has put enough reference points on the map for us to find our way to the end. Well, more than that, he literally gave us Ten Commandments. He literally gave us the Beatitudes. And then he told us that he was going to give us successors that would keep his church working and present and alive and sacramental, holy, until he returned. He wasn't going to leave us in the lurch. This is the whole falsehood that Luther goes on. Luther's like, well, I mean, because I didn't leave Rome. Rome left me. Then he had to show up because apparently we were abandoned. What? Who are you to say the church left you? Like, what? It's really weird. It, but it goes, but yeah, I mean, but there are enough, there are enough waypoints for us to figure it out, right? Just because somebody can sit and go, well, how do you know? How can you be certain? And it's like, because God won't abandon me. Because he, he said so. He will not abandon me. Because he's he just. He said he won't. He's just. He is merciful. The church is his bride. I am part of the bride of Christ. He will not abandon his bride. And guess what? It's pretty logical, too. Well, again, if Jesus says, I'm going to be with you always, you're never going to be alone. You'll never be abandoned. And every Protestant nowadays is like, yeah, Jesus is with me, man. It's all going to be good. And wait a minute. So why is Jesus with you? But for some reason, he missed everyone before Martin Luther showed up. Well, like, or I think they do. Just, just sit I there think... and argue that the Catholic Church, the clergy of that era, somehow wrenched the control away from the truth this is absolute garbage in terms of it doesn't logically stand up so i can either take the words of a at that point a 1500 year old institution that has a succession of bishops who have written and this is doctors and fathers up to that point explaining the continuity this apostolic succession the holiness of the church the universality of the church or I can go and grab this one dude who freaking basically flunked out of a year of seminary and then broke his vows and encouraged other people to break them. So I can go with a liar, uh, someone who can't actually be virtuous, or I can go with the church that actually displays more of the attributes of Christ that he said would always be there forever. So this is a logic problem. Well, I think, too, it's, it is logic. I mean, that's the thing. It's like it's logical. You can look at this and go, all right, one of these things doesn't doesn't smell right, doesn't pass the sniff test. Um but I think it, it is, too, is the idea that the Protestants, right, you take it to the extreme, right? Martin Luther made a church for his needs and his desires. Uh, Henry VIII did the same for his. John Calvin did the same for his. And, you know, so on and so forth. Everyone's doing that. Um, take that to his logical conclusion, which is, I don't want to be part of a church. I am my own church. It's me. It's only me. But then they also, they go, but... But you're part of it too. You just have your way. I have my way. We're all part of the same same church. And it's like, no, um, man, that logically cannot coexist together. If you disagree with me, we cannot both be under the same umbrella. God is not going to allow error. So the difference here between Christianity and what Satan says is not my will, but thy will be done, is what Christ actually says in the garden as he commits himself to the passion which is about to befall him. What does Mary say, by the way? Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word. So it's all according to God's word, period, done. 
And the issue I have is when people say, well, you do it your way, I'll do it my way. What the hell is that? What does the snake say? What the hell is that? I'm going to be frank because this frustrates me because to sit there and say, yeah, what did the snake say? Basically, do what thou wilt. That's effectively what he's saying. What do Satanists say today? Do what thou wilt, whatever you want. So I do my way, you do your way. That's a Satanist thing. Yes. And that's terrible for anyone who actually contemplates the depths of you sitting there saying to anyone, I'll do it my way and you do it your way. You are now sitting there and saying, who cares about God's way? That's what you just said. So if you're wrong and the other person's right, you said it's okay for you to be in sin. If you're actually right and the other person's wrong, then you just said it's okay for the other person to be in sin and offend God. Either way, not good. So I know we're probably going to get awesome criticisms for this whenever people finally get to this point in the show. It's going to be great. So throw us comments. All it's going to be awesome. Them. I know, right? <laughs> Thank you both. One of these days, man, they're going to look back <laughs> and they're going to be like, they're going to be like, can you believe they only thought they had two viewers? Like, man, big man. Help us out. All right. So we move on to the next five questions here um, where we are now going to talk about the attributes of the Catholic Church. These are actually, this goes into the same problem that we're seeing that Luther challenged. This is the same problem that Henry VIII challenged. You name every Protestant founder from basically 1517 on to the present day. They have all attacked these different uh, attributes of the church. So let's go into question 161. What are the chief attributes of the Catholic Church? The chief attributes of the Catholic Church are authority, infallibility, and indefectibility. They are called attributes because they are qualities perfecting the nature of the church. Now, why do these matter? Because this is what Moses had when he came down off the mountain. This is what Abraham had when he was given his covenant. This is what Melchizedek had whenever he was made the first priest. Everyone who's ever been in charge of the body of Christ, be it the Old Testament body before everything comes together and it is matured and the new covenant would come, or after Christ and the new covenant is now there, the only way to ensure that everybody does the will of Christ all the time is that a body, a group of people with that appointment, that anointing, that Holy Ghost, the presence of the Holy Ghost and the blessings is there to actually spread it forward. So this is why these are big. I can't think of a word. The whole point is it's a big deal. So <laughs> we're blue collar. It's fine. Yeah, Let it right. ride. That's right. Question 162 then. So talking about the first of the big deals here, what is meant by the authority of the Catholic Church? The authority of the Catholic Church is meant that the Pope and the bishops, as lawful successors of the apostles, have the power from Christ himself to teach, to sanctify, and to govern the faithful in spiritual matters. This means when the clergy give us a lawful order which coincides with the truths that are given to us via scripture or apostolic tradition, we follow it. This is the magisterium of the church. Sorry, Luther. Sorry, Calvin. Sorry, Cranmer. Sorry, Joseph Smith. Just keep going through all the random people, all the characters, wherever they were at. No, you don't get to do what you want. You don't get to say that the church was wrong because you don't like how it's going. And you don't get to tell the church that they're wrong because there's an idiot cleric out there who doesn't actually know what he's doing. And he decides he's going to go off the rails and be the next Martin Luther. You don't have to listen to him. You just leave him and be like, whoa, sorry, bro. That looks like it's kind of bad out there. I'm just going to I'm going to do my own thing. The uh, I think, yeah, the authority thing is a really interesting one for. For us as Americans, those who grew up with the whole Bill of Rights thing, right? Because we look at, well, nobody can tell me what to do, right? Don't tread on me, right? Uh, you don't have authority over me. A snake. Exactly. And it is interesting because you say, no, that's not true. There are people with authority over, over you, right? And they go, well, if they have authority over me, how can I have free will? <laughs> it's like, well, okay, child. <laughs> um, like you can have free will, but then you're also free to suffer the consequences of exerting it in a correct. way that the authorities don't like. So I think these attributes are rolled up into one, right? Because you sit there and you go, there is order to the world. There needs to be order. God doesn't want anarchy. He doesn't want people to just run around and do whatever they want. He wants people to be in symbiotic relationships. He wants structures to work functions. I mean, natural order of the world. Everything makes sense. So, Corona. um, would he give corona? Sorry. Yeah. Would he give authority <laughs> to a institution that he is also not made infallible? Right? And the answer would be no. He would not give authority over you to something that is 
not infallible. Mm, that's not what Peter says. That's not what Paul says. Really? Be slaves well, to your slaves, masters, <clears throat> even yes, if they're bad. That's in this world. In this world. Render unto Caesar. Caesar was yeah, not Caesar just. Also, Caesar also has to render unto God what is God's. Caesar will also be held to account for what he Correct. does and does not render so to I'm God. So ta- I am talking about in the spiritual realm. In the spiritual, in the spiritual realm, realm only. This is what we're talking about. Yes. So, all right. So let me clarify. Would he give authority over spiritual guidance, moral teaching, to someone who is not teaching things infallible? Absolutely not. Correct. That's what I'm getting at. You are right. I, I, I should have clarified that more. Yes. You don't have the ability or the God. We're not called to just overthrow governments left and right because they do something wrong. That's not what I was saying. In this world, yeah, whatever. It's the temporal It's imperfect. World. Yeah, it's imperfect is what it is. You know, obey your masters. But yes, yeah, so, yes. So, would God give authority, spiritual authority, moral teaching authority over you to a institution that he is not also protected with infallibility? The answer is no. So, all right. So, that makes sense, right? God wants people to be taught correctly. He then gives the authority. Because he can't tolerate error. He, he is truth. He can't tolerate. He is truth. He doesn't, right? He, so, he's, all right. So, they're truth, they have the authority over you, but not just for a generation, as we talked about before, and then comes into effectability, to the end of time, right? All humans, all humans will have the ability, they don't have to choose it, but they will have the ability to fall under the infallible authority of an everlasting church while they're here on this earth. That the option all, always exists. That all makes sense. Right, that all like that logically, bow tied on it right there. You know what I mean? Like it all they they roll into one. So if we keep going from there, so because we get through the other uh, three factors here, the other three uh, attributes, um, we'll see the rest of this play out. This is where a lot of the arguments really come in between Protestants and Catholics. So be prepared. So here we go into question one sixty three. What is meant by the infallibility of the Catholic Church? By the infallibility of the Catholic Church. It is meant that the church, by the special assistance of the Holy Ghost, cannot err when it teaches or believes a doctrine of faith and morals. Now, can clergy have error? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So we watch okay. Judas completely turn the wrong way and crash and burn. We watch Peter deny Jesus three times. We watch Thomas doubt the resurrection. We watch James and John and the other apostles all fight over who's supposed to be highest in heaven. We see multiple times where the clergy actually failed to do what they were supposed to do when they needed to do it most. There is no reason to expect that men will be any better now than they were then. Sorry, evolution. We even saw the first pope be corrected. We did see it. Book of Galatians. We saw Peter make a poor judgment on what the behavior and the practice was supposed to be of Christians, and Paul had to correct him and say, this is the actual correction. Sorry, Mr. Pope, that's not how it goes. So all of that aside, knowing that men are fallible, do you know what isn't fallible? The church is infallible. There is no way it can fall. So Period. Is- done. Because God will never abandon his bride. Ephesians 5, to 33 talks about the church as the bride of Christ, and she does every single thing that he asks and never errors. Now, the church does not get tainted or tarnished or blamed when a bad pope or a bad bishop or a bad priest like Martin Luther makes a bunch of poor judgments. Those are on them individually. And the errors of selling indulgences, when those were done abusively in ways that were sinful, as the Council of Trent would ultimately come along to condemn, that was the clergy who are an anthema. The church itself is still pure, regardless of whether or not her clerics actually do what they're told. So when we take something from the church where the Holy Ghost is stuck to it, the Holy Ghost is in it, the Holy Ghost is part of it, that truth is infallible because God is infallible. So yes, I can sin, Jake can sin, a bunch of other people can sin, but in the end it does nothing to cause the Catholic Church to be any less infallible than she already is. Which is why when you see people who aren't Catholic insult Catholics or the Catholic Church, the only thing they can ever do is insult failed Catholics. They can never insult the doctrines if they actually get down to brass tacks when they look at the whole thing logically. So the church herself is infallible regardless of her members. So then we move on. We need to sit there and say, wait a minute. Uh, When does the 
church teach infallibly? So this is 164. The church teaches infallibly when it defines through the Pope alone, as the teacher of all Christians or through the Pope and the bishops, a doctrine of faith or morals to be held by all of the faithful. This is the other problem that we see, especially with the Eastern Orthodox, that just cannot comprehend how you could have a Pope and say, a Pope and infallibility, we can put these two things together. The man who is the Pope can error, and they have, and there have been many, which is why we have anti-Popes, where we actually sit there and say, these guys were actually so bad, they actually were doing things totally against the church, but in the end, they don't taint or ruin God, they ruin themselves. They don't taint or ruin the church, which God protects and dwells in. So we're talking the sun leading it, the Holy Ghost filling it. They can't wreck that, but they can hurt themselves. However, if they're going to do it right, they're going to adhere to the Petrine office. They're going to adhere to the powers that were instilled within the see of Peter and the chair of Peter. And they're going to then communicate what God has given us. They can affirm what Christ has given as truth. And that only in their affirmation of things that Christ has already given us can they be infallible. So if the Pope says... I only like Cheerios and cornflakes are sinful. Doesn't matter. That's not infallible. So that is a completely fallible statement that actually has no bearing on Catholics. And if he says, no, I think you guys should only wear flip-flops on Tuesdays, that is not actually a commandment that he can give us, and that is not infallible. So I don't have to care what his opinions are about flip-flops or Cheerios. All I really have to care about is whether or not he's going to communicate things that God has already passed on. Uh, I think it's uh, it's a difficult that is a, it really is a difficult concept for people to understand that the Pope can be infallible but the, the the person who is the Pope is not completely you know it's a it can be a difficult one for people to understand I, I think I would probably for those um, again who I imagine our viewers are going to be mainly American and at least have a passing interest in history um, and so we've held up for a long time and not that we should, but it's just in our culture. So it helps translate things better. Uh, we hold up, um, the constitution, right. As the greatest created document of all time. And we have politicians that break the constitution, misinterpret the constitution. Doesn't change what the constitution is, or here's a better one. Forget the constitution, forget this weird stuff. A math teacher. Two plus two equals four. Always has, always will. It's not going to change, right? That math teacher can get up there and say, today it's five. And you're going, mm, no. no, you're still my math teacher. And when you speak truth, right? Right. And he can even give you a bad grade, but in the end, it doesn't actually change the math problem itself. So we have to make sure to differentiate the man from, from the body. Moving on to question 165. What is meant by the indefectibility of the Catholic Church? By the indefectibility of the Catholic Church, it is meant that the Church, as Christ founded it, will last until the end of time. That goes without saying. There, it can't fall away. Sorry, Martin Luther. There's nothing that was actually gone or broken from the Church herself. The clergy may go off and cause all sorts of issues, which the Council of Trent did ultimately come to remedy. But in the end, the Church in and of itself, she can never falter, and she will always be faithful. She will always be there until Christ returns to claim her. At the end of time, I think it is interesting too because we as humans, we naturally have this idea. We 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 comprehend maybe not in this context, or maybe it's willful ignorance, but we we as humans can actually comprehend the idea that an institution is separate from the people who make it up. Like we can comprehend that, right? Because we can be like, "This isn't the America that you know I know and love," or blah blah. blah when we see something terrible happen, or some injustice, or some whatever abortion, right? This isn't you know all this stuff. So we can comprehend that no matter how every the president or the congress, uh, Congress or Supreme Court or any number of politicians or people that make it up, the police force, the army, to the the government workers, whatever it is. All, can all be doing terrible things, and somehow people are still able to rectify the idea that, like, yeah, but that's not America. It is America, but it's not America. And that's how Catholics feel whenever we watch popes and bishops and priests make decisions that ultimately are not Christian in nature and ultimately cause their own set of issues. Yeah, you, you don't abandon the ideals of whatever institution you are, you know, proclaiming, right? We don't abandon the Catholic Church because of one, you know, we don't leave the foot of the cross because of Judas. 
So in one hand, it's a very, that's a very difficult conversation to actually have with a non-believer or a Protestant. It really is. Like, I mean, you've had it before. They go, how can you, I mean, how can you look at him? Look at him. You think that, you think that all those sex abuses, like, is that what, yeah. And it's difficult, but at the same time, those people actually, they know the truth of the matter. Maybe they need to see it in a different context, right? Yeah. In in the America context, maybe, or in the, or the, you know, I'm a Minnesota Vikings fan and, you know, and this player doesn't represent the Minnesota Vikings, like blah, 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 blah. It's better. You know what I mean? If they truly had faith in Jesus Christ, the way they claim it, they would have faith in the body that he instituted and know that those men do not represent Christ and that those men can be fallible while his body that he created is always perfect. Moving on to question 166, are all obliged to belong to the Catholic Church in order to be saved? All are obliged to belong to the Catholic Church in order to be saved. Period. Done. There is no salvation outside the Catholic Church. And anyone who is saved, and we, we talked about this last episode, anyone who is saved is saved because of the merits of the Catholic Church. So this is because the church has efficacy in her mass and gains merit for all the masses that are celebrated because the church gains efficacy in her prayers because all of those prayers that are said ultimately aid those people who are not Catholics in getting what they need to get from God. The whole reason the world is in a good or bad place ultimately stems from the state of the clergy and the laity and what they are doing within the church to actually earn those graces and those protections, those reparations from God. But yes, everyone has to be in the Catholic Church in order to be saved. Now, does that mean that everyone dies and they think they're a Catholic when they die? No, you have extraordinary circumstances, but the only reason they will be allowed to actually have that last moment of contrition and be able to do what they need to do as they're dying to come around and say, I will do whatever you want me to do, Jesus Christ. Just tell me and I'm in. It's because of Catholics. It's because of Catholic prayers. It's because of Catholic sacrifice. It's because of mass. It's because of everything that Christ created in the Catholic Church. Yeah. Uh, Anybody who ever says, um, I don't know, Jesus is the privileged way, should look at them very skeptical. Speaking of fallible clergy, but go on. Question 167. What do we mean when we say outside the church there is no salvation? When we say outside the church there is no salvation, we mean that Christ made the Catholic Church a necessary means of salvation and commanded all to enter it so that a person must be connected with the church in some way to be saved. This is what we just said. No one gets to the Father except through Christ, and no one gets to Christ except through the sacraments, prayer, the Mass. The only way to become truly intimate with the man God, with our Lord and Savior, is through all of the things that he created for us that he put the apostles through at the last supper and ultimately instantiated on the cross the mass is our extension of that event the timeless way that we are connected to him until ultimately he returns no i really do think that it's people think it's harsh but i mean the truth is what it is you know regardless of how you feel about it um jesus said many times in the gospel how many times people will try and come saying father father and and say i don't know you why does the path to destruction narrows the gate to salvation? Like it's a, it's a pretty, I don't want to say grim picture, but it is a pretty um, serious. Yeah. Knowing the name of Jesus Christ does not get us saved. And this is what James says when he talks about the fact that even the demons know Jesus Christ is savior. <laughs> the thing is, is they don't actually do what he says. So we can sit there and try and hope um, without any basis for hoping that Christ will come and help us but we really need to be doing all that he commanded and then follow and be a part of that church to receive the sacraments from that church, participate in the sacrifices of that church in order that we may be saved. That's what he said. Knowing and accepting. um, If if you wanted to boil it down to something, those two things, there's a lot that go into both of those. It's not just like, Hey, I know there's a guy 2000 years ago named Jesus. He's got me. I accept that he saves me. That's not good. But knowing him, knowing all the teachings of the church, knowing, you know, all the rules, precepts of the faith, knowing the tradition, knowing how to defend your faith, and then accepting it and following all those commandments. All right, I might buy that then if you're going to, if you want to boil it down into those two simple things, but it turns out they're not very simple. They're pretty hard, actually. And then moving forward to build on the same topic that hits another aspect of the problem here. Question 168. How can persons who are not members of the Catholic Church be saved? 
Persons who are not members of the Catholic Church can be saved if, through no fault of their own, they do not know that the Catholic Church is the true Church, but they love God and try to do His will, for in this way they are connected with the Church by desire. Now, that is very rare. So, let's not... Particularly in today's time and age. Yeah, because you're talking Catholics. Catholic priests have made it all over the world. Every single continent practically has had priests on it, if not all of them. You're talking almost all the cultures of the world have had priests show up to teach them. You're talking the fact that... Maybe in 50 to 100 years, maybe it might actually start to become a little bit more common of a thing, unfortunately, because the missionaries have stopped. Yeah, and there may be new generations that come out, but this is not... right now, like, you, that's a really bad thing to bank. Well, I just don't know about the Catholic Church. Have you heard of the Catholic Church? Yeah. There you go. There's your, there you go. Follow that breadcrumb. I mean, you're probably looking at the whole idea of, of people that are completely and utterly ignorant. Yeah, but even then, there's willful ignorance. The whole thing is here is those people have to be willing, again, through no fault of their own. They cannot have denied the Catholic when the Catholics showed up. They cannot deny the sacraments when they see it. They cannot deny the authority of the bishops when they know that obviously the bishop is holding some authority somewhere. Uh, the instant anyone tries to resist the truth, the church, yeah, Christ's you don't know church, how many helping hands you'll get. Yeah, the thing is, at some point, to. yeah, at some point, God's like, okay, well, I tried enough, and that's it. You don't really want me. So, because you got to remember, I mean, anyone who would make it to heaven for some reason, just the thought experiment, who actually didn't really want to be Catholic and didn't really want to have the endless mass that heaven is, where we worship and we contemplate what God forever. What would that be like? hell for anyone who doesn't actually want to be there it would be hell which means god is doing a mercy in some way to sit there and say oh you didn't want to be with me then don't be with me you can go where you aren't with me there you go i've made a place for you in hell it's like in the book uh the sight of hell where the man's crying out after he's already been condemned to jesus and jesus says you only dislike the punishment you don't dislike the fact that you're separated from me yeah, um, like you only you only dislike it because it's it hurts, not because you want to be with me anymore. And so those members of the body of Christ of the Catholic Church, the only way they get saved is by doing everything they were supposed to do for the glory of God because they want to do it, and then ultimately that ultimately results in their salvation. This goes back to the whole thing I was saying before. If you have a member of your body that is fighting you and would become say I don't know cancerous and you can't do anything about it, what do you have to do with that member? You cut it off. You have to remove it. And this is what Paul talks about in Romans 11, where he's talking about what happens with those uh, parts of the tree that actually do not bear fruit. In the end, they're cut off and cast into the fire. And so this is where that whole notion of the mystical body of Christ and all of its limbs comes in. And then moving on to question 169, why is the Catholic Church called the mystical body of Christ? The Catholic Church is called the mystical body of Christ because its members are united by supernatural bonds with one another and with Christ to their head, thus resembling the members and head of the living human body. This is Colossians 1.18, where Paul literally says we are part of the mystical body. He also talks in Corinthians about the fact that each members of, these body, of, of this body have different roles because not everyone can be the hand and not everyone can be the foot, not everyone can be the eye, but together all of our different unique tra- talents our unique desires and perspectives, all of that, putting it all together, as long as we're willful in our adherence to God's will and follow his commandments, we all can do some really amazing things and glorify God in some most some of the most beautiful ways. This is why some of us are really good at painting pictures and others are really good at singing and others are really good at writing and others are really good at speaking. And you put this whole thing together and all of a sudden you get this whole group of people that all together now can share the God. symphony of Louvatar. Yeah. It's what Tolkien writes about. It's that whole thing of there's a harmony there where all these people are doing different facets. They're performing different roles that God has created for us. It's a beautiful thing. It's and that's why we're functional all- symbiotic, like, I mean, the whole thing, every piece has its part. There's no excess, right? There's no dead weight. Everyone is serving a function, a purpose. And so going into the characteristics and starting to look at details about the mystical body, uh, question 169 is uh, broken apart here. So 169A, what are the conditions necessary in order that a person can be a member of the mystical body of Christ in the full sense? In order that a person 
be a member of the mystical body in the full sense, it is necessary that he be baptized and that he profess the Catholic faith and that he neither separate himself from the mystical body nor be excluded by lawful authority. This means do everything you're told. This means obedience. This means humility. This is virtue. The more we exercise virtue after we've received baptism and say that, yes, I want to be with Christ in his universal faith, adhering to every single commandment, we can remain with him. Well, I think, too, right there is, I think, is the fact that uh, it's an enduring thing, right? You don't get baptized, you don't profess the faith, and, and then you're in, you can't be out. You have to make sure you do not separate yourself, right? Make sure that you are not separated via excommunication or through your own. Uh, so it's a enduring challenge. Right. And then this is where Christian 169B comes in. How does a baptized person separate himself from full incorporation in the mystical body? A baptized person separates himself from full incorporation into the mystical body by an open and deliberate heresy, apostasy, or schism. So Ooh, let's get the difference of those. I know, and that's what we're going to do right now. This is uh, the last parts of this lesson here. I love here. throwing those words around. They are a pretty big deal, and then uh, people get really sensitive about them when you start throwing them out, too. So, um, But I feel with where we're kind of heading right now um, in this uh, world, it would not surprise me at all if uh, we actually uh, see a lot more people get called heretics uh, going forward. So let's dive into this one. 169C, how does a baptized person separate himself from full incorporation in the mystical body by heresy? A baptized person separates himself from full incorporation into the mystical body by heresy when he openly rejects or doubts some doctrine proposed by the Catholic Church as a truth of divine Catholic faith, though still professing himself to be a Christian. Mm. Ergo, Martin Luther. Ergo, Thomas Cranmer. Ergo, Arius. Yep. You're talking John Calvin, Nestorius, Donatus. You're talking Marcion. You're talking Valentinus. Dare we say <laughs> Balthazar? Yeah. There are so many men that actually adhere to this label. They're like, no, 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 no. I'm Catholic. Or I'm Catholic, but I just don't like fill in the blank. Or I'm Catholic, but really we need to be supportive of the modern cultures and the modern weirdness because, I mean, that's just, that's just so. I think the slippery slope, too, on a lot of things is is the human, the, it's the whole curiosity killed the cat type of situation, right? There are some things, like, there are some things that logically need to be thought out and um, and worked out in, in order that you might convert others, and there are sometimes that there are fun thought experiments. But there are other things, too, that may just need to be left alone. Because you're, there's you're right really, and wrong. Yeah, there's right and wrong, and, and you trying to do this. But hold on, let's just, let's just pretend. No. No. Uh, you're trying to split truth right here, and it doesn't happen. You slip off into falsehood. So, and then we can just go into, as opposed to reading out all of those questions, all the words again for uh, 169 D and E, let's just go with the summary here. Apostasy yeah. is really what question 169 D deals with. Mm -hmm. So where heresy is the part, and someone disagrees with a piece of the Catholic faith, apostasy is when they completely reject the, the Christian faith entirely. So if we were going to talk heretics, we're talking Protestants are heretics because they sit there and they claim Christianity. They acknowledge Christ as king. They acknowledge he is God in large part. And so by and large, they are heretics, whereas apostasy are people who actually deny Christianity altogether. So these are individuals that are, and when we're talking separating himself through apostasy, this is a former Catholic or a Catholic who decides I'm leaving and Christianity is completely wrong and they become a Muslim or a Jew or an atheist or something else. And they say it's all, blah, I don't believe it anymore. That's terrible. Denying Christ before men results in Christ denying us before his father. It's a bad look. We really don't want to do that. Moving on to 169E. Now we're talking about removing ourselves from full incorporation in the mystical body by schism. This is where we talk about the Eastern Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, the Ukrainian Orthodox, all of that flavor, the Greek Orthodox. Um, this is where they separate themselves by openly refusing obedience to the lawful authorities of the church, particularly the Pope. And so again, the Orthodox are in that state. Do they still have valid sacraments, unlike Protestants? Yes. Do they still actually offer Mass, unlike Protestants? Yes. And do they still believe a whole bunch of the Catholic truths? Yes, they do. We really hope they come back again one day, but that's what schism is, where they're just denying authority, but the rest of the tenets are actually present. So this is actually, if we look at the Anglican Church, what it was before Henry VIII died, 
They were actually in schism because they only denied the authority and left the Latin and the mass. They left the sacraments. They left the rest of the teachings of the church and only denied the Pope. When Henry VIII died and Thomas Cranmer was allowed to write or rewrite the common book of prayer and remove the meaning of the mass and remove all of the sacraments the way they had been instantiated and turn the mass into a just a communion service, that is when the Anglicans fell out of schism and into heresy. Um, more so than just being simple heretics. Um, if you want to listen to more of that, Michael Davies, uh, God rest his soul, had a bunch of good talks on the separation of the Anglican church, Anglican orders, and a bunch of other stuff that's out there on YouTube. Check it out. It's really good. And then last, if we're going to finish this out now, closing it out, 169F, we're saying, when is a baptized person separated from full incorporation in the mystical body by a lawful authority? And the answer, a baptized person is separated from full incorporation in the mystical body by a lawful authority when he incurs one of the more severe forms of excommunication. Now, (laughs) excommunication is not something exacted by men. It is technically, I would say, you could could argue that it is actually incurred or executed by the individual who excommunicates himself. Correct. But really, it's God who's sitting there saying, well, basically, I had laws. You said you didn't want to follow the laws. You're excommunicated. And then now what happens? Well, it's not so it, it is very often misunderstood because the Pope excommunicated him. No. And it's like, no, that person walked away. Right. He has God has said, you know, you have separated yourself from the church. Right. Pope, as the figure of Christ on earth, is like, all right, just so I can clarify for everyone. Because anyone didn't know. In case anyone was confused, I will go ahead and we'll rubber stamp this. He is excommunicated. Just so there's no confusion. Right. It is not the Pope that's just like. A dude's a jerk. And I don't like him. Yeah. it's a, So it's not, yes, they, that, it's a good point to bring up because it is not the, it is not a, a man leveling a charge or a, a judgment on another man. Uh, the person who is excommunicated actually did that to themselves, and the Pope is just there for essentially... Um, to communicate what God has already rendered. Correct. There you go. To articulate. Yeah, so just to make sure we're all clear on that, Pope can declare them excommunicated based on the actions that that person has done and, and the fact that God has effectively booted them. And the reason he does that, by the way, people go, well, what a jerk. Like, what do you really about? It's, it's a mercy because there, unfortunately, are people that are so diabolically disoriented in their pride or whatever sin it is that they may not realize how far they've truly fallen away from the church. And so, hey, work, wake up call. You are excommunicated right now. You cannot participate in the sacraments. You can't. You need to fix this error. Get back. Get right with God and His Church. And it's a mercy because that person hopefully will go. Oh wow, things really got spun away from me on that one. You know. And there have been royals who have been in situations like that, excommunicated, who've come back, and that mercy was giving them the ability to clearly see now how far they were. What off. they've done wrong where they sit, what they need to correct. And then they can come back. And then and they then can actually get in the good graces of God again out of a state of sin. And it's it's a beautiful thing. It is awesome. It's not a, you got to cry uncle and call me Pope and then I'll let you back in. No, it's, it's stupid. Yeah. So, so all things considered, hopefully that uh, was helpful for you all today as we went over lesson 12. So we're going to hit lesson 13 next time. Thank you all for listening. Please make sure to follow us on YouTube Spotify, SoundCloud, and iTunes. Share wherever you can and throw questions our way. We'll be happy to answer them. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you later. So as always, St. Joseph, pray Pray for for us. us.